I invite you to turn with your Bibles with me, please, to the Gospel of Exodus. It's the second book in your Bible, the Gospel of Exodus, in chapter 3. Chapter 3 will be our launching point this morning as we begin a new series that we believe will be a dynamic story of the, of the redemption plan of God. The title of the whole sermon series, it's about eight weeks long, Lord willing, will be called Exodus, the mission of God, man's exit and God's entrance. And as uh, we dig into this book, I want to encourage you as we normally do here at Providence, and that is that would you take some time, and, and this week, it'll probably only take about half an hour's time, um, to read through the book of Exodus. Perhaps consider reading it through several times over the next several weeks, or at least just make a start on it and try to get through the end by the time we're done in eight weeks. But, but it will be very helpful for you, for you to look and to open up your heart, not only to the preaching of the Word of God, but to the reading and the intake of the Word of God. You, you need the Word of God, you need the reading of the Word of God, as much so, if not more, than even the preaching of the Word of God. So, so do not depart from the law of God, but meditate on it day and night. And so, so just, just journey through Exodus uh, as the Spirit leads you, and, and then come on Sundays ready to hear Exodus. Uh, that's, that'll be our joy to, to join together in this. And and uh, as we get into the book of Exodus, uh, really, there's probably uh, so many passages that we find that are just so, uh, such a saturated, uh, critical part of the book of Exodus, but there's no greater passage that I think epitomizes at least the theme that, that we would like to, to study, and that is Christ in the book of Exodus, the redemption plan of God in the book of Exodus, then chapter 3 in Exodus. And so, Follow along with me as we read much of chapter 3 in the book of Exodus. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel Out of Egypt, he said, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel, 
and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Thus says the word of God. Would you pray with me this morning? Like those holy tablets that ascended from the great cloud on the mountain of Sinai. Our eyes dare to look upon the holy words of you, O God, who by your spirit has engraved these words into our Bibles. Let us, like Moses, approach the word of God with fear and trembling to hear the holy word of God. So, Father, as it were, we take our sandals off during the hearing and the preaching of the word of God in this holy and sacred moment. We come to you unworthy and ready to hear, O the great I am. Would you meet with us as you met with Moses in power? Would you meet with us as you met with Moses in supreme authority? Would you meet with us as you met with Moses with promise? Oh, Father, we pray that our ears would not be slack, but that we would hear every word that, that is announced from your word this morning and our hearts would take in and by faith we would obey and not be hearers only. May Christ be right out front as we preach of him this morning, our only hope, our great salvation, that one who is better than Moses. May he be glorified in Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. God has a mission. I don't know if you've ever considered the fact that God is on a mission. He's not just working things out and, and trying to accomplish things and has a will and has a kingdom. But God has a mission. His mission includes at least four different initiatives. God is on a mission, number one, to confront evil. Ever since evil had entered into humanity and ever since evil had entered into creation, God has confronted evil, even the evil one, and then every wicked human heart. God desires to confront evil. But number two, the second part of God's mission involves redeeming slaves. And when really, when we look at theologically and biblically, the picture of slaves, it is, it is every one of the, of, human, of the human race, every one of Adam's sons, has been, as the Apostle Paul called it, in bondage to the kingdom of darkness. Slaves in the, in the far, the furthest extent of the word, even paling in comparison to the human picture of slavery that is indebted uh, in, in, um, as men give and are bought in slavery in the common system that we know. We are slaves and God is intent on redeeming, on buying back the human race. And thirdly, the third intent, the third part of God's initiative in his mission is to lead his people to the promised land, to lead his people to the place of rest. And fourthly, God's desire is to dwell with his people. You see, this has always been God's intent ever since the Garden of Eden, that he would confront evil, that he would, that he would find Adam and Eve in the middle of their shame, in the middle of their fallenness, in the middle of their brokenness and of their guilt, that he would discover their shamefulness, that he would uncover their man-made cloaks of, uh, to cover up their unrighteousness, and that he would approach them and he would redeem them. He would bring to them a covering for their sin, a proper covering, a, a God-appointed and a God-provided covering for their guilt and shame. But then to lead them out of this place of Eden that is now cursed by sin and to lead them into a new Eden. He would first need to redeem them as slaves in order to bring them into the promised land. But his supreme desire that overrules that is, is the ultimate goal is that God could live with his people forever and ever. And that's where we find the last two pages of our Bibles describing this is the end game. This is 
This is where everything is heading. God desires, and he is moving mountains, and he is moving the evil one, and he is removing the curse of sin, and he is dealing with sin so that he can finally meet with his people in the new Eden, in the promised land. And so from the very first two pages of your Bible to the last two pages of the Bible is a journey back to Eden. And really, this is the wilderness experience between, really between uh, Genesis 3 and Revelation 21 is the wilderness experience of humanity as God promises the wilderness will not always be. And so God will move through his four initiatives. By the way, he will be completely and utterly and supremely successful and nothing will stand in his way to accomplish his mission. And the book of Exodus is, is a, a mini telling of that. It's just a micro narrative of the grand narrative of redemption. And God essentially says, I am. And I want to be among my people, but first they will need to be delivered from bondage to be with me. This is the story of Exodus, and this is the story of every believer here today. God's redemption is the plan. God's redemption is the plan. And the writer of Exodus, Moses, looks back over what God had done in his people's lives, and he writes with redemptive perspective. That is, Moses had carried on with God's people for 40 years for the wilderness. And it comes to the point where Joshua and Caleb will be entrusted to follow the Lord through the Jordan River and into the promised land. Unless this generation, this younger generation that was not guilty of of transgressing against God and rebellion and in grumbling, this new generation will pour into the land of, of promise, this, this place of rest, and they will need to be reminded that they serve a God who redeems because they are sinners in need of redemption, just like their parents were. And so Moses, nearing the end of his life, finds impetus and spirit, um, uh, um, spirit compulsion to record for this new generation that God is and that he is with his people and he will move everything that stands between him and his people. And so he writes this book of Exodus and now he has perspective. What has God done? He's had some time to consider it as he awaits his meeting with the Lord in the end of his life. So he writes with redemptive perspective. That's the reason why he writes this book. But what he didn't know as the book was beginning in his own story, his own part of the story, he didn't know at the beginning of this book when he was living out in those days what God was doing when he was meeting with God in, in the burning bush, when he was, when he was laying in, the, in the, the little basket moving along down the river and growing up in Pharaoh's palace, and then, and then uh, on the run as a fugitive from God, uh, from, from Egypt and from the Pharaoh, uh, as he had taken someone's life, he didn't know what, was God, what God was doing, and really nobody knew what God was doing. But now, as he writes this book, he writes now with perspective, and he says, ah, I know some of what God was doing. Let me write it out for you. So he ends the book of Genesis, okay? Remember that this is the same author, and, and really, if we could, it just wouldn't even divide between the two books. Because the end of Genesis is when Jacob has brought all of his sons and his family, about 70 people, into Egypt because God has given them a place of shelter from the famine by the means of the faithful one, Joseph. And so now God's people, this promised family, will, will have an opportunity to live in Goshen, a place that is, that is beautiful and fertile, and they're able to thrive there. And this, this family of 70, over 400 years' time, grows and swells into this, this great people group of Abraham's sons. And at the very beginning of the book of Exodus, uh, Moses records some of the genealogy. That's the very first couple verses of the book of Exodus. 
And he says, now the family has grown. And in the first chapter of Exodus, he says, now they're becoming a threat. Because the great Pharaoh has looked upon this nation and it's growing and it's, it seems, the Bible says in Exodus chapter 1, that the, the women of this, of this great nation, they seem to be, to be bringing birth and bringing little ones in this world to a greater proportion than even the Egyptian wives. And there's these midwives and they could hardly even contain it. They're so busy every single day and so multiplied. So now a family of 70, now uh, about 400 years later, is, is likely in the millions. Some estimate between one and two million. And so the story begins really in a sad way of Pharaoh saying, look upon this nation they will overtake us. And so he makes it very difficult upon Israel by first of all, seeking to kill the firstborn or seeking to kill the sons in the family. And that's how Exodus begins in a terrible and tragic way with with this sort of genocide. Moses begins to write the book of Exodus with a very bleak picture. And that involves the fact is that the people of Israel, they can't get out of Egypt. They can't get out from underneath the control of the Pharaoh. They can't get out from underneath the curse of death that seems looming over them. How are they going to get out? Well, this morning, as we understand God's desire to redeem his people, it speaks into God's desire to redeem a people even today. This story of redemption isn't just a story of redemption of Israel. It's a story of redemption that God desires to be preached all around the world to every nation. And that is that God is willing to redeem. And he is still gathering a people, a people after his name. And he is, and he is on a mission to redeem fallen man. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at four truths about God's desire in redemption. And his first desire, number one, is that God prepares the heart of his people to receive the grace of redemption. Now, as Moses moves into Egypt, uh, the people uh, sort of just, they're groaning, they're suffering underneath the whips, and their hands are broken underneath making clay without straw, clay bricks without straw, and they are, they are in a terrible situation. It, it really is far from their mind that they will ever be able to get out of Egypt. There just doesn't seem to be any way. They don't have the swords. They don't have the whips. They don't have the chariots. They are severely oppressed. So God needs to do a work of preparing their hearts. But firstly, God begins by preparing the heart of one man. God be- begins by preparing them on an individual basis. And then... Exodus chapter 2, verse 3, we see the beginning of God's desire to work individually. By the way, God desires to work in all of us of providence, but notwithstanding, like the tree and the forest, God desires to work in your heart, in every single one of our hearts. Every one of us this morning is, is like a Moses here, where God is desiring to work a redemptive work, a full work of redemption in your life. And Moses represents himself as, as the first person, you could say, in Israel that God begins to work in his heart. And by the way, it, it, it is likely, it seems to be the pattern of God, that before God begins to work in some of our loved ones' hearts, and before God, or we would even say simultaneously, as God desires to work in other people's hearts around us, God does not overlook us and desires to work in our hearts first. And so in chapter 2, verse 3, we learn that there was a a time in which Moses' family could not hide Moses any longer. He was beginning to crawl, beginning to cry. We don't know why he couldn't be hidden anymore from the the sword of the the soldiers. But in verse number 3 in chapter 2, and by the way, go ahead and open up your Bibles in the book of Exodus chapter 2. And we're going to march through this, this book a little bit this morning, not covering every passage, but following the story. And God desires to work individually. And first of all, we find Moses' miraculous river journey. And in verse number three, when she could hide him no longer, 
she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed him with a a bitumen and pitch, and she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. God is beginning to provide a deliverer. God is beginning to provide a redeemer for Israel, and it's found all the way from the very beginning of his life story. Secondly, not only do we find God preparing Moses through a miraculous journey, but we also see that God even prepares Moses through a tragic crime. As we continue into chapter 2, we learn that Moses, uh, when he uh, comes of age and he sees these, these wicked taskmasters who are, are beating the slaves and, and getting them to work harder, and it is a very, very sad situation in chapter 1 and then leading into the middle of chapter 2, we just see the story get darker and darker and the picture just seems more and more bleak. And the question remains in the reader's heart, how are these people ever going to escape from this bondage, it just seems impossible. And then a horrible thing happens. The one who we, we have seen a, a miraculous uh, thing happen, he has been delivered from, from the sword and he's been delivered from the basket in the river. And, and now this, this unlikely man who we see sort of coming to power and we see this, this uh, interplay between him being a Jew but in the Pharaoh's home and we kind of are, are getting a little bit anticipatory about, oh, maybe this is the, the deliverer. We're learning of someone's name. Nobody else's name is recorded here as, as the story unfolds. And so we find something terrible happens. In verse number 11, one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on the burdens. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Looked this way and that and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and buried him in the sand. After doing such a thing as he was about his people and, and had come to have a reputation of being a murderer, now he had lost his reputation with his own people. And so he fled Egypt. This is not what we would like to see in, in the story of someone who we're hoping has fulfilled some promise that, that God will hear the cry of his people. And now he has become a, a murderer and will flee from geographically far away from God's people. How is he ever going to be a deliverer? But God is preparing his heart. And thirdly, we see then in chapter 3, as we had read in verse number 13, that God meets with Moses. You know, the number one way in which God desires to work in your heart, by the way, is not secondarily. And then it's not by the crumbs that fall from the table, by any... By any, any uh, podcast, by any Sunday morning sermon, God desires to meet with you. There's no substitute for your personal meeting with God. You have got to hear God's word for yourself, not someone else's digestion of the word of God as good and holy and as applicable as any of their teaching and testimony may be. You need to meet with God. And this we find. It's the turning point in Moses' life. Now this one who seems to have this dual rule of being a, a Hebrew in, in Pharaoh's palace and now on the run and, and, uh, and in the wilderness and murder. And now we see what is the significant place where, where God begins to do a redeeming work in Moses' life. There's no substitute for your meeting with God. And I have really good news for you. It might not be a burning bush. It probably won't be a burning bush. But God desires to meet with you as powerfully and as personally as he met with Moses. The same God. The title of our message this morning is I Still Am, but but I have to apologize for that middle word because that word still just clarifies something in our grammar and in our English. The word still doesn't have to be there because the name I am really means I still am. And if you believe that you serve the God of Moses and of Abraham and the God of Jesus, then you have the opportunity to meet with this same God. I am means I still am. I am the God of all promises. I am the self-existent one. I exist eternally, but I am, I am here. I am for you. 
I am. And God's redeeming work is not only begins, listen, by your meeting with God through Jesus Christ, but listen, God's redeeming work continues as you meet with him. And so individually, God works through a miraculous river journey. Individually, God works a redeeming work even among, even in the midst of Moses' tragic crime. And thirdly, not only so, but God's redeeming work is really made evident in his meeting with Moses through the burning bush. And then fourthly, God's redeeming work then shows significant signs of movement in chapter 4 and verses 29 through 31. Moses goes back to Egypt. Now we see some fruit. We see the beginning signs of redemption take place in Moses' heart. In verse number 29, chapter 4, Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. And Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. Listen, what had begun with one man's redemption story now has begun to spread. What had begun with one man's private back-of-the-wilderness meeting now becomes infectious. We see the behavior of the people reflective of the behavior of Moses at the burning bush. What does Moses do when he beholds God in the burning bush? He takes off his sandals and he puts himself with his face into the dust. And so now these people, now not Moses that they see, now hearing the testimony of God, God is with them. They now bow their heads and they worship. And so that moves us into the second part. Not only does God, does God prepare his people individually, but God prepares his people corporately. He prepares his people corporately. And what was taking place in Israel, as we had alluded to in chapter 1, in verse 13 and 14, is so the taskmasters of Egypt so ruthlessly made the people of Israel to work as slaves and made their lives bitter and hard service in mortar and in brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. God was preparing the people to see their need for redemption. In chapter 2, verse 23 and 20 through 25, chapter 2, verse 23 during those days, during those many days that the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. You see, while God was preparing Moses, God was preparing the people what God was preparing individually, God was preparing nationally or corporately the people of Israel. You know, it is not just possible, it is likely that some of the journey that you're on in your faith right now has a lot to do with the context of our entire church. This is one of the reasons why we gather together in unity around the word of God on Sundays and other times of gatherings like in prayer. That is to hear that our personal part, our personal pathway of redemption actually has a lot of parallels to other people's paths of redemption in their particular circumstances. We gather to fill the room up with no way God's teaching you that that's like God teaching me this. You see, God desires to shepherd us individually as sheep, as, as his own people, as Moses is in our church. But Jesus Christ, our great pastor, 
had as the desire to take us all together and teach us all some of the same lessons. That's how a shepherd leads. He tends to the needs of sheep one at a time, but also feeds, provides, protects the entire flock as well. So he was doing in Israel. Not only does God prepare the heart of Moses, so as to say that God prepares individuals for his redemption, and not only does God provide redemption for and prepares the heart for people congregationally, corporately, but also God does so in front of the watching world. God prepares the heart for redemption individually and corporately in front of the heathen. This is signaled to us, at least in small part, in chapter 1 and verse number 20. What was taking place among the people? God's favor. Verse number 20, so God dealt, dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. What was taking place in front of Pharaoh and in front of Egypt was the flourishing of an unlikely people. Slaves don't multiply. Slaves are no threat, but this nation becomes a rising threat. God is beginning to bless his people. He's moving towards his people with great blessing. He's doing this all in the face of the heathen. Listen, God works about in a strange way, a miraculous way, a gracious way, his redeeming work in your heart in the struggle against sin in front of the world. Often we like to say, well, I, I just wish the world wouldn't see me struggle in my sin. I just feel that it would be, it's a distraction to them. Yes, often our sin is a very big distraction and a hindrance to the gospel witness. But know this, that no sin is greater than the grace of God. And God will do a work in in you, and he will do a work in spite of you, and his glory will not stop, because he will show who he is, even in your suffering, whether it's suffering because of sin, or suffering because of physical affliction ordained by God, or whatever the suffering looks like. What God is intent on showing the world is not who you are. When Moses went to Pharaoh, he didn't go to Pharaoh and say, let the people of God go because they're the people of God. That's not what God told Moses to tell Pharaoh. God told Moses to tell Pharaoh, let the people of God go because he is God. And listen, whether it's, whether it's by our faithlessness or our faithfulness, God will, God will proclaim his glory to a, a watching world through people like you and I, murderers like Moses, slaves like, like Israel. Because he's really not in the business of telling people to be like you. That's not his redemption plan. That wouldn't be redemption, would it? But secondly, not only does God prepare the heart of his people to receive the grace of redemption, but God also then provides the shelter from his judgment for those who by faith will receive it. And so as Moses goes and there's plagues that God brings and pours forth upon the Pharaoh and Egypt and the land, there's 10 plagues, but there's a final plague that's the worst than all. All of them added up, really still pale in comparison, as tragic and as horrible as they all are, the 10th plague is the heartbreaker. What will need to happen in, in order to be rescued from this 10th plague, the, the death of the firstborn in every home, will need to be a shelter from the judgment. 
And in Exodus chapter 12, verse 7 and 8, the instruction is given. I'm sorry, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 23, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel, that is the doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. God provides the shelter from his judgment for those who by faith will receive it. Meanwhile, on the inside, according to verse number seven and eight, they will take some of the blood and they'll put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses and they will eat of it and this will be of the, of the lamb. And they shall eat the flesh of the lamb that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. They will consume the lamb. Not only will they apply the lamb to the blood, to the doorposts, the blood of the lamb to the doorpost, but they will also then consume the lamb. Not only will the, 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 the blood be a sign, but it'll be personalized, it'll be applied, it'll be internalized into their lives. But those who don't, those who say, I will come up with my own redemption plan, those who say, I will come up with another covering from the judgment of God, those who say there's, there's a hundred other ways than the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. Those who say any other way but the God-ascribed way of shelter from judgment. Verse number 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne. Notice, notice the stretch of this sentence. From the palace of Pharaoh to the captive that is in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all of the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead, a house meaning a family. I don't know that our imaginations can hear but the sound of the groaning was in the land of Egypt that night. And my friend, this is the sound of the unredeemed. This is the sound of those who have sought another way. And maybe you're listening here this morning. Maybe you're watching the sermon and you have passed by Jesus. You have said there is, there is no relevance to him in my life. I will come up with my own covering. I will make things right with God in some way, in the way in which I have designed for myself. But I am not trusting in this Jesus. This is your sound. You bear upon you the weight of judgment today. You bear upon you the weight of condemnation, of sin. God will deal with you on a final day, but today our heart is grieved and the heart of God is grieved for you because your cry of your heart goes out and you have no covering, you have no solace, you have no solution, you have no cleansing. And what happens to you is actually, and this is the, the most terrible thing for me to say, but, but it is the most truthful thing from the word of God, and that is that what will happen to you is not merely the death of the firstborn. But the Bible says that there is no passing over you in judgment where the Lamb's blood is not applied. That there is coming a day where you will reckon and you will, you will give an account before God as to why you would not trust in the payment of Jesus Christ for your sins. And the reckoning on that day will not be merely the physical death of a firstborn son. But it will be the banishment of your soul for eternity from God. Unless the blood is applied, worse than the firstborn comes upon you. But the good news is, it does not have to be because God provides the shelter of his judgment for those who will by faith receive it. But the third truth we find in the book of Exodus as we, as we just overview this book of the themes of redemption, the third truth we see is that God proves his faithfulness 
to his people on the other side of redemption. You say, what does it look like when my life is surrendered to God? What does it look like when the blood is applied? What does it look like when I give my life to trust in this great rescuer? What kind of promise unfolds for me? What is life like, lived like when it is redeemed? Well, it's lived like this. And this morning we read it amidst our, um, in our reading. God protects from the destruction. In the song of Moses, or the song of the seed, and the defeat of the Egyptians, in chapter 15, Exodus reads like this. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. Listen, when you place your faith in the, in the blood purchase of your soul through Jesus Christ, God proves his faithfulness by defeating your greatest enemy. What is your greatest enemy? The Apostle Paul explains the greatest enemy of every person, whether great or small, in all of the world who has ever been born of Adam. The greatest enemy is death and the grave. And God proves in Israel in here and through Jesus Christ that by the purchase of the blood of Jesus Christ, God has canceled out. He has removed the punishment of separation of you with God. He has removed death from your destiny. He has removed judgment. He has removed punishment. And in such such doing, he then provides a song of the soul. And the song of the soul is able to look squarely in the face of death, like any follower of Jesus Christ. And we could say, oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, death, where is your victory? And as a believer, we can, through the hope of Jesus Christ, through the trust in Jesus Christ, we can look at the end of our life and say, it's just the beginning. But for that one who has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, you should be terrified by death. There is no song of victory for the one who does not have the blood applied. There's no hope. For the one who has not placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone, receiving his grace by faith, there is no song. No song. And maybe that describes you this morning. Maybe you're deep in sadness. Maybe you're deep in despair. Maybe you're deep underneath the guilt. You say the Bible and and you're preaching and, and everything I hear from the church of Christ, it just lays upon me layer upon layer of guilt. And you feel it. And you say, I am going to reject that guilt. I'm not going to feel that way. It's just religion trying to beat me down. I have such good news for you. Jesus Christ is the lamb who is willing to take your guilt when you place it on him by faith. When you take the lamb instead of yourself, when you take Jesus and you say, I don't deserve it, but I'm willing to trust that you took my place in being punished by God. Oh, listen. For the one who places their sin upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ, their testimony becomes the song of Moses. They say to sin... They say to death, they say to the devil, they say, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, in greatness of your majesty, you have overthrown my adversaries. Another sign of God's faithfulness in providing um, his faithfulness on the other side of redemption was in chapter 17 when Moses and Joshua and Aaron were standing near him and they held up his hand in chapter 17, verse 11. Wherever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. And whenever he lowered his hand, uh, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it while Aaron and Hur 
held up his hands, one on one side and the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Listen, God proves his faithfulness on the other side of redemption. He proves his faithfulness by providing bread and water. In chapter 16, the people in the wilderness were hungry. And the Lord said to Moses in chapter 4, in chapter 16, verse 4, Behold, I am about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in the law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. And so Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that it was the Lord who brought you out of the land in Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. God protects his people from destruction on the other side of redemption. God provides bread and water on the other side of their redemption, their exodus. And then also then with, with water in the very same chapter, Verse seven, and in the next chapter, verse seven, chapter 17, verse 5, And the Lord said to Moses, Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take your hand, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink it. And Moses did so. God provides the bread and water. He knows what they need. God becomes their sufficiency. What do you need, people of Israel? You need to be protected from enemies. You need to be provided for. I will give you bread. I will give you quail. I will give you water. But I will do so to remind you that when you eat this bread and when you eat this quail, when you drink this water, I am the God of Exodus. I am the God who brings you out of exile. Now listen, is this not the testimony that we ought to rehearse for ourselves as we consume the pleasures that God has given to us, as we even do base and common things of eating bread at our table for lunch and of of drinking water? We say this is a testimony that God has brought us out of Egypt, out of bondage. Then thirdly, God also, in his faithfulness, provides a covenant. He reestablishes or rehearses the covenant that he had made with Abraham, with their father, with the founder of their nation. In chapter 19, now therefore, verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. God establishes a covenant. God has established a covenant to you and I through Jesus Christ. He has become our covenant. He is the pledge of our covenant, and he is the ratifier of our covenant, and he is the fulfiller of the covenant. Even when we don't obey in the covenant, Jesus has obeyed for us. So God proves his faithfulness by promising to you and I. Promising to you and I that as covenant breakers, as law breakers like you and I, that God holds fast to his covenant because he does not look to you to fulfill the mandates of this covenant. He looks to his son who accomplished all righteousness, who met all the obligations for the covenant, and he sees his track record, and he accounts them, he reckons them unto you and I. And so God proves his faithfulness on on the other side of redemption, saying, okay, you you have been exiled, you've been delivered from Egypt, and you're a mess. Just because you have a great story doesn't mean that now you're faithful. You're grumbling. You're doubting who I am. You're, You're breaking laws. You're making golden calf idols at the feet of the mountain that trembles with my presence. You're hoarding bread. When tomorrow you'll have more. You've already seen water come from a rock. And yet you wonder again where water's going to come from. And you say, oh, it was far better for me to make bricks without straw. Oh, that I was back into paradise, Egypt. 
God knows your heart, believer. And just like Israel, he knows. He knows that you will fret when overwhelmed by the enemy. And he knows that you will wonder if there's bread for tomorrow. And he knows that at times you almost bold face will look at him and say, I wish the other gods of the world could help me because you're no help. And on Jesus Christ, he puts all of that and says, I know that you're a people who doubt me. But I am. And when Jesus stands before Pilate, Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Are you God? And Jesus says, I am. Lastly, these two pictures in particular we'll be looking at in several weeks, Lord willing, but God positions himself in the midst of his people as a promoter of their redemption. Listen, there is nobody who wants you more free, free from sin than God does. You may be weary from your addictions. You may be weary of temptation and of giving in many times. You may be weary of the weaknesses of your flesh, of your mind, of your heart, of your will. But there is no one who is pursuing your redemption. There is no one who is pursuing your sanctification, your conforming to Jesus Christ, even close to how God is doing that in your life. God is pursuing your heart. And God is pursuing you individually, and God is pursuing everyone and corporately our church. And number one, God desires, first of all, to be in our midst. And in chapter 25, God gives instruction to Moses to build a place where the people can know that God is with them. God desires to be with them. Let that just ponder on that for a week this week, by the way. That God wants to be with you. Just sit in that. The paradox of that, the unlikeliness of that, even the impossibility of that that could happen. Let all of that meditate on it, that God wants to dwell with you, lawbreaker, sinner, unfaithful follower of Jesus Christ. And God wants to be in the middle of you. And so he wanted to be with his people, and so he said to make a sanctuary. Verse Chapter 25, verse 8, let them make me a sanctuary so that I may dwell in their midst. Who would want to be with them? At times, do you ever feel like you can't even live with yourself? God does. God wants to live with yourself. God wants to live with you. Exactly as I show you, verse number nine, concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all of its furniture, you shall make it. God desires to live and to dwell with you. Yes, in your family problems. Yes, you far off ones who are on the backside of all the tent encampment. You're not important to anybody's radar. You don't feel like you're, you're a, you just feel like you're a nobody. You're not the head of a tribe. Yes, murderer. Yes, lawbreaker. Yes, complainer. Yes, doubter. God desires to dwell with you. Not only by means of tabernacle, but also God desires to, to make it all happen through a mediator. In chapter 32, we, we see one of the several images we'll be looking at in several weeks of where God where God desires to meet with his people and there becomes to the forefront a mediator and it's Moses. In chapter 32, 
In verse number 30, the next day Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. You see what Moses is saying there? He's saying, if, if it means for their salvation that you would punish me instead, then let it be so. That's a mediator. But that's not what God will do. Verse 33. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. The people need a mediator. Listen, God promotes himself in the midst of his people as a promoter of redemption. Jesus Christ is that one who is our great mediator. He is the one who is seeking after your conformity to his image in a way far greater than you could ever imagine. And his tactics and his tools are really far-reaching. And the story of Exodus is the foreshadowing of a greater redemption, really, that is ultimately found in Jesus Christ. From slavery to sin and its evil taskmaster, the devil, to miraculous exodus and a tiresome journey as Christians, fraught with peril and enemies and hardship and suffering, to the constant abiding presence of God through every day, like a cloud in the day and a pillar of fire in every night, the receiving of the law as a means of joy and delight, to fellowship with God, to finally entering into rest where all the old things pass away and Eden is restored. This was the picture of Israel's journey and it remains for us as believers today who have believed upon Jesus Christ as a picture of our salvation. When we study the, a book of the Bible, it's helpful to see the top and the tail of the book. As a means of introduction, I include this statement to say, at times, if you're doing a book study, look at the top, the very first part of a book, and the end, the tail. And it's in the book of Exodus that the top is where we find God's people, a growing nation, and the generations that follow Jacob. And they can't get out of Egypt. They can't get out of Egypt. When we read the tale in Exodus chapter 40, we see that Moses can't get in. And it's not into Egypt. Israel can't get out of Egypt, and Moses can't get in. But what can't he get in? The end of the book says that he can't get into the place of rest, and he can't get into the tabernacle. At the beginning, we have a dilemma. Israel can't get out. The, the book ends, tragically, Moses can't get in. He can't get into the promised land. He can't even get into the tabernacle. But if Moses, who, while not perfect, was courageous and good and mediatorial, and he walked with the Lord and he met with God and he wrought great miracles, if Moses can't get in, the book of Exodus leads us to ask the question, if this story, while we do not see him as perfect, but we see him as courageous and full of faith and really a, a really great leader interceding on behalf of his people. If he can't get into the place of rest, who can? There will need to be one who's better than Moses. And that's why we conclude the end of the chapter, who can get in? It leaves every reader of the book of Exodus hungry to learn, if Moses can't get in, who can? And when I read the book, I, I ask myself, I'm not better than Moses. Are you better than Moses? Well, if the book of Exodus was the last book of the Bible then we would surely have cause to be distraught. But thank the Lord, it's actually just the second book of the Bible. Praise God for that. 
Because, and as such, the second book of the Bible, the Exodus, really is part of the gospel of God. It shows us that God is on a mission, and it's not done yet. It's not done at Exodus chapter 40. God's on a mission, mission, and ever since the Garden of Eden, he's been on this mission to redeem his people from sin and unbelief and rebellion and to draw them near to him, to dwell with them. So we consider Moses. And we consider ourselves and we find out that we are, we are just not worthy to dwell with God and, and enter into rest if we're not as good as Moses. Not unless God does something. Not unless God does something more on this mission. So it's then that we read in the Hebrews, in the book of Hebrews, that we consider Moses and we consider ourselves, but we need to consider the one whom God sent to complete the mission. Who's the one that completes the mission? He's the lamb. He's the bread. He's the water. He's the tabernacle. And he's the mediator of all of it. It's Jesus Christ. And so turn with me as we close to Hebrews chapter 3 and listen as God says, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Recalling last Lord's Day, Resurrection Sunday, we were in Luke chapter 24, 44 to 48. Jesus walking along the road with the two discouraged disciples following the resurrection. And remember that they were sort of dragging their heels and very sorrowful, where's the body of Jesus? And Jesus catches up to Cleopas and another disciple, and they're just wondering, what is God doing? Because everything doesn't seem right. Jesus doesn't reveal who he is, but as he's walking with them, remember his words, Luke records, from beginning with Moses and the prophets, he tells them who he is. Now here this morning, we find ourselves in a book of Moses. And now here in the book of Hebrews, we're going to find out that Jesus was the theme of Exodus. Not Moses, not Israel, but Jesus. Follow along in Hebrews 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share the heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Moses was telling us of someone who could go into the promised land. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion and the days of the wilderness, the testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For those who heard and yet rebelled, was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom he was provoked for 40 years, was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see they were unable to enter. Why? Because they would not believe. They would not believe. Where will we place our belief in this morning? It cannot be that we are worthy to enter in. It must be because there was one who made us worthy, who can make you worthy to enter into the place of rest. And so God says, I still am. 
That's what essentially God says when he speaks to Moses in the burning bush. And that's his message to you today. I am. Consider Moses. Consider yourself. And you find out that you're not worthy. You're not worthy. So we consider Christ. We need to consider the one whom God sent to complete his mission. We need to consider that one. He's the lamb. He's the bread. He's the water, the tabernacle. He's the mediator. His name is Jesus. And you and I need him today. In every part of our life. In the wilderness, at the mountain, in slavery, in the place of rest. We need Jesus. Let's pray.